Well, good morning, everyone. We're looking forward to a blessed week as we hear what God is doing in different places around the world through the partnership that we're privileged to have with some of our missionaries that are returning home for a weekend, for weeks. And I hope you have a chance to interact with them while they're here and ask them questions and learn more about what's going on in their lives and learn from their experiences and the wisdom and things that they're learning as they are involved with people that are very different in many ways from us, but in many ways the same, created in the image of God and in need of a, a Redeemer. And we're thankful that we have such a Redeemer. Before we get into the Word this morning, there's, there's an announcement I need to make that's more by way of kind of family business. Um, as of Friday morning, so two days ago, we are a church that no longer has hazard insurance. With all of the changes that have gone on in the insurance industry, our policy was dropped. And so the elders, the trustees, have been interacting with different insurance companies, trying to get different bids, what that might look like. We shared some of this last weekend at the church leadership meeting, uh, but we wanted to let the congregation know as we get ready for a congregational meeting on the 17th, we hope to have more information available. But it's just a reminder for us to pray, to seek his face. Many of you are facing the very same thing. I just had a meeting with our insurance agent last Thursday on a policy review, and we're all facing increases as well. So we're all in this together as we look to the Lord and how he might lead us. And so before we go into our time in the Word, let's pray together and ask the Lord to just give wisdom to us in this next important step. Father, we thank you that all that we have is yours. And you are a good God and a trustworthy God. And we're a needy people. We just cry out to you now, Father, and say, would you help us to be good stewards of all that you've given us? And we know, Father, that it is possible for you to turn the hand of the king like a waterway. And so certainly you can turn the heart of an insurance agent. But Lord, we trust you above all else. You are our greatest treasure. And we lean into you now and ask that you would guide us. Would you give wisdom to to Jerry and Mark and Rob and the elders, the trustees, as they pursue other options. But help us just to rest in you and find that ultimately you are trustworthy. And we look to you. We look forward to how you will respond as we commit this into your care. We pray for families in our midst that are in the similar situation. Lord, be a good provider and show your good hand for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll ask you to make sure your cell phones are turned to silent at this time as we are live streaming that we don't have any interruptions in the recording and the transmission of the broadcast. To those of you joining us online this morning, it's good to have you here. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. We're glad that though you are elsewhere, you can be with us here in spirit as we study God's word together. So good morning to you on behalf of all that are present here in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we get ready to celebrate our theme of salvation for every nation in our missions conference, which begins Thursday, I wanted to begin with a quote from a famous missionary to kind of stir our hearts to be thinking about what should be our attitudes and the reflections of the church as we get ready and as we get ready for our passage this morning in Matthew 16. C.C. Studd was a pioneer missionary in China and in Africa. He was a founder of the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, which is known today as WEC International. But the gospel was not always the focus of Sud's life. He was born into money, and he enjoyed a rather bourgeois existence. It all changed, however, when he met the Savior. After his conversion to, to Christ, his life was radically changed. In fact, he gave away his family fortune and stopped pursuing his career in the game of cricket because of the gospel call in his life. And he said this, I had known about Jesus dying for me, but I had never understood that if he had died for me, then I didn't belong to myself. Redemption means to buy back. And so I belong to him. And if I belong to him, either I had to be a thief and keep which was no longer mine, or else I had to give up everything to God. When I came to see that Jesus had died for me, it didn't seem that hard to give up all for him. 
How could I spend the best years of my life living for the honors of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? Since the time the Lord Jesus Christ started the church and sent out those first apostles in every generation and into each person in every generation, that gospel call has gone out. Hear, believe, repent, receive, follow. It goes out not only in a general sense, but to each of us individually, because Jesus did not come to be popular or to draw large crowds or to be part of a celebrity culture. He didn't come to make people feel good about themselves or promise them their best life now. He came to honor his father by living out a perfect life of obedience and submission and sacrifice and holiness in order to provide for the forgiveness of the sins of his people that he came to save and to bring into a right relationship with the living God. But that same gospel makes clear that Jesus didn't just come to be a savior of those who believed in him, but he came to show that he was the Lord of all. And as he came to give his life and die so that others might live forever, so those who claim to know him are called to put aside all earthly ambitions and live for what truly matters and what will last forever, namely the making of disciples of all nations for the glory of God and for the good of the church that Jesus is building. And the passage that we look at this morning, it is one in which Jesus gives a no-holds-barred, bare-knuckled message that to truly live means that you must die, that to truly find means that you must lose. And in a mystery that is the gospel, there is a heavenly wisdom that far surpasses that of the best and brightest of the earth. Yes, it is a challenging passage that we will look at it this morning, but we surrender to the authority of the Word of God, and that's why we go through a book sequentially because we can't avoid the difficult passages that way. We just have to move through them and let the Lord speak to us in them. I invite you now to stand in honor of the passage that we will look at this morning as it's read, in honor of God and his word. We'll study this morning Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. And the truthful and inspired word of God says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done truly I say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord given to encourage and challenge us on what this walk of discipleship looks like. Let us receive it for that purpose. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, we have just sung two wonders here that we confess our worth and our unworthiness. Our values set our ransom paid at the cross. But it's ultimately only in the light of the cross that we see the value of Christ and we see our ultimate value in the cause of Christ. So would you be our teacher this morning? Would you lead us through this passage? Would your Holy Spirit open hearts and minds and do the work that he alone can do? Would you cause us to enter into your presence and rejoice in a good Savior? So in these holy moments, lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In previous weeks, as we've looked at the passages that have taken place just before this one, Jesus has chided Peter for thinking along human lines, for not setting his mind on the things of God. Jesus says that he, the Messiah, the Son of Man, must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised. We saw this, what we call a divine imperative that the, the original made it very clear that this was something he had to do. There was nothing that could hold him back. But Peter didn't like that. Peter had other aspirations. And so instead of being 
rock upon which Jesus will build the church was Jesus as the cornerstone. Peter becomes a stumbling block standing in the way of the Lord. And so with that as a reminder, as we finish out this part of Matthew 16, we come to our first major point this morning, and I encourage you to follow along in your sermon outlines and take notes and thinking of someone with whom you can share these things throughout the week. Our first point this morning is the threefold challenge. The threefold challenge. And our text begins. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has just said what he must do to accomplish the salvation of his people. And now he tells his disciples what they must do as his followers, as those who have received salvation, as those who belong to him. They must deny and die in order to save and to live. So Jesus has been interacting with Peter in this dialogue, this word game that's been going on about rock and stumbling block and all this, this confession of faith and who will build the church. And of course, we know it's Christ. But now he turns from talking just with Peter and he talks to all of the disciples and he, in fact, is speaking to all of us today. If anyone would come after me. There's a lot to that little phrase. What follows fills the meaning for us that Jesus is the pathway to heaven. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is only through Jesus that we can do that. He's the only way that we have access to the Father. But we're going to learn in a deeper measure as we move closer to the end of the gospel that the pathway that Jesus took involves suffering before glory. And that would be the pattern then that he would set for those who would follow him. No cross, no crown. The way of the cross would not be easy for Jesus, and it will not be easy for believers. And therefore, the prosperity gospel is a lie that promises that somehow we can have the riches of a world to come in the world in which we live. No, we're never told that we're going to have a bed of ease in Zion as we walk this trail, but we're told that we'll walk in the Jesus way, in the cross way, that we'll have to give up and die so that others might live. But what is the first part of this three-part challenge? Well, it's give up. Give up. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. At the, at the core, the gospel is, is not about us, and that continually humbles us again and again, that it's ultimately about Christ and what he has done to glorify the Father in the redemption of a people and the building of the church. That in the gospel, God in Christ is reconciling a people to himself. A price was paid. A substitution was made. Redemption was accomplished. A people was purchased. And listen even to the cries of heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll as they sing to Jesus and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so to be a Christian means to be in Christ. It means to be purchased by him, to be in his body, in the church, that we're in union with him. He is our life, our strength, our source, our guide, our hope, our salvation, and on and on it goes. And he's in the process today of building the church, which he promised to do. And he's adding people to the church all around the world. And come and hear over this next week stories of how he's doing that in Congo, in India, in the Japanese diaspora in the United States, in Spain and other places, how Christ is doing exactly what he said he would do, adding to the church that he is building. But one does not simply drift into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. One follows him in allegiance to him as Lord, as the one who has been purchased by him, and he owns the deed, as it were, to our lives, that we belong to him, we are his cherished possession, and he's the one that's worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our efforts, worthy of our walk, worthy of all that we have. And so Jesus begins with a tough word, deny yourself. Especially where, when you look at what it means in the original language, it, it means to repudiate. That's a tough word. It's not a word we generally associate with ourselves. To repudiate, to break away from another allegiance, to disassociate from self-interest. These are what are behind this word, to deny himself. And we know that that's not something that any of us do naturally. 
It requires a supernatural empowering and work in our lives so that we're able to see where true value lies and the fact that it lies in Christ. We're really good at seeking what we want to seek. We're not so good at denying ourselves. Yet that's what required of us if we want to be in Christ. Denying, dying to self means denying one's own will and, and surrendering to the better will of God. It's to fight against this dual tendency that we all have. We all have this dual tendency on the one hand to make others the focus of our problems and to make ourselves the hero of our own stories. And we have to fight against that in the denial of ourselves to not make the other the focus of our problems or to make ourselves the heroes but to remind ourselves that we're the problem. As D.L. Moody says, the biggest problem I have in the Christian life is with D.L. Moody. Put your own name in that sentence and it's still true as it is for me. And so the hero that we need is Christ. There's no way we can talk about the cross and need to deny ourselves that makes us look good. The gospel is intended to make Christ look good, to lift up Christ, who then calls us to have a loyalty that surpasses all other loyalties and allegiances that we might have, more important than self-preservation, because if Christ is our life, then we're in good hands. And he will preserve us, and he will prepare a great inheritance for us, which in fact is himself, and then will bring us into his presence forever. The first part of this command is give up. The second one is take up. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. And sometimes we forget that the cross is the way of death. If we were in first century Palestine and we saw a man carrying a crossbeam surrounded by a bunch of Roman soldiers, there would be no question what the outcome would be. It was the end of that man's way of living. Crucifixion was a feared manner of execution. It was intended by the Romans to be brutal, to be painful, to be humiliating, to be long-lasting. A man crucified on a cross sometimes could endure for days as he's pressing against the nails and his heels trying to push himself up to breathe and then as he falls back down again and as he endures the cold of the evening and the heat of the day and total humiliation. It was intended by the Romans to give people second thoughts about committing any crimes. The Romans used it to punish and keep a people under control. And Dr. Doriani Daniel Doriani reminds us that to the Greeks, crucifixion meant humiliation. To the Romans, it meant powerlessness and the punishment of evil. To the Jews, it meant to be cursed of God. And when we think of the unfolding of the gospel story, Jesus takes on all of those things. He was humiliated and shamed on our behalf. He bore the shame that our sin brought with it before a holy God. He gave himself over to be powerless, as it were, at the hands of the Romans who beat him and whipped him and punished him, all of that for our sins. And he bore the curse that came with our sin and guilt and shame and punishment. He fulfilled it all. And so that's why we sing with humility, and that's why we gather around a table, and that's why we say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. The cross was a method of execution. It led to death. Today we might think of the electric chair, the gas chamber, the firing squad. The one carrying the cross knew that his life, his way of living, was over. He was carrying around with him his own means of execution. That is what it means to take up the cross and die to self. We don't carry around our means of execution today physically, but spiritually we're called to do so, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, denying ourselves, allowing the will of God to flow in and through our lives. And Jesus takes this symbol, the symbol of discipleship, where we die to self, we deny self, and we take up the cross. And so in light of what it meant historically, in light of what it means in the gospel story, the cross, we must not make it something menial. The cross is not simply just a, a, a difficult person to get along with. 
The cross is not a temporary physical struggle that we have to deal with. The cross is not a challenging situation. I say, well, we all have our cross to bear. Yes, we do. And it's far more severe than we ever give it accounting. Carrying the cross means our current way of living must come to an end. It's not an ideal thing to take up an instrument of torture and death which requires sacrifice and loss, but there is no Christianity without a cross. And there's no salvation without it either. Jesus is not talking here about minor inconveniences and discomforts. He's laying down a claim over which he is Lord. He says, follow me. My way. There's no other choice. Thirdly, then, after we have given up, we take up, we keep up. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Follow me, Jesus said. It's an ongoing action verb of walking with him as he leads us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, as he gives us eternal life, as he leads us to the gateways of heaven. So we need to be careful when we preach the gospel. We're so wanting to make it so simple and easy, but we miss the point sometimes if we don't make sure that we explain it. That the gospel calls us to repent. To repent means you're walking in one direction and you completely change direction. You're walking towards the gates of hell and you turn and walk towards the celestial city. This repentance results then in a life that is changing and it's not an option, it's a command. And Jesus says, repent and follow me and keep on following me. It's fleeing the wrath that is to come that our sin justly deserves. And so it's this ongoing then life of obedience that we're no longer belonging to ourselves, but we've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ who then leads us and guides us and will preserve us and bring us safely home. That is what it means to follow Christ. That is what it means to think about the things of God, the ways of God, the plans of God, and overcoming and putting to the side and even putting to death the thinking of the things of men. It's an attitude of surrender to how he leads, to believe him in what he says, to obey him in what he commands, to please him with all that we do in our lives and our decisions and actions and reactions and pleasures and treasures that we run after, that all of it would be for his glory. In fact, Jesus makes it a little harder in, in Luke's rendition where it says, must pick up his cross, die to self daily. It means it's ongoing so that Jesus is continually elevated in our lives, that seeking what is best for his glory, best for his people, not always trying to insert ourselves in where we shouldn't unless he has placed us there. It's a displaying of self-sacrifice that Christ showed through his love towards his people. All of that's included in this threefold challenge. Give up, take up, keep up. And our second point this morning is Jesus is going to drive it further home to what this means. We get to the great comparison, the great comparison. So we ask the question, well, why should we take up the cross? The simple answer is, you want to live forever in the presence of God? Here it is. That's the one way that he has given to us. It's this paradox that's in the gospel. It goes against what we would consider human wisdom or human thinking. And the paradox of the gospel, self-preservation, actually results in self-destruction. And so Jesus is going to give us reasons why we are to deny and take up and keep up. And the first one is that in the paradox of the gospel, we have to lose in order to live. Lose in order to live. For Jesus continues, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What, what words Jesus leaves us here, there's really even no room for discussion. Whoever would save his life, Jesus said, will lose it. This runs counter to the age in which we live, where we are told to do everything we can to pamper ourselves, to, to serve ourselves, our, our mailboxes, our email inboxes, our text messages, the advertising that comes across the television screen, encourage us to fill our lives up with us and to run after those things that might be medical and physical. 
take this treatment, run after this drug, do these supplements, follow this diet, do these treatments, this magic elixir, and on and on it goes, so that we might live longer and better. Or we might run after the material things of the world that says, get the job, get the business card, get the title, get the rewards, get the reputation, get the power. And we hear that message droning in our ears day after day after day to where even some point it becomes normal. Yes, go for all the gusto you can get. We want the focus to be on the things of this world, the exploits and the titles and the achievements. And think of the, ex the, the expense. Think of the effort. Think of the sleepless nights that people go through to try to run after all these things. And in the end, we all end up in the same spot. Plot number so-and-so and cemetery number so-and-so. But what if we had a clearer vision of heaven? What if we had a clearer vision of what our real inheritance is? In recent weeks, we, some of us have had the privilege of studying the book Pray Big, and it's one of the things in that book that's saying, look, our inheritance is Christ himself. And once you have Christ, you have everything you need. And how about if we were to pray for one another that we had our eyes open to see the great inheritance that is Christ? It would give balance to everything else. We might even ask ourselves, stealing out of the book, pray big again. Why do we fight so hard for so long to just add on additional things to this life when we have so much more to look forward to in Christ? So the question becomes, not whether we can have these things, but do these things have us? Or is Christ the one who is truly in charge of our lives? So what, what are we trusting God for? For a better life here? or for a better inheritance there. Now here's also the paradox. I believe those that truly find their treasure and pleasure in Christ are the freest and most able to enjoy the blessings of this world. That good steak dinner with a friend, a beautiful flower garden, a walk in the woods, a late night conversation over tea. It's when Christ is our pleasure and treasure that all these things fall into focus and they fulfill their intended role. So what are we trusting God for? But don't we often get our perspectives twisted up? Don't we often get them a little bit in the wrong way? What we seek after, what we want to receive, what we think we deserve, what we think we should be rewarded with. Why don't people recognize how good I really am? And the problem is, is every one of us in this room, sitting, below before, sitting alone before a holy God, would have to confess those same things. That we still want to make it more about us than we do about Christ. And so let's be those who will say, yes, we, we recognize it. We confess it. And then we receive forgiveness for it. And Lord, would you animate our hearts and fill us with such great love for Christ that to desire Christ just causes some of these other things to fade. And their importance will be relative to the ultimate, which is important, which is Christ himself. Because in the final analysis, to lose one's life for Jesus is actually to gain all that really matters, both in this age and in the age to come. But the struggle to hang on to control, to keep things our own way, to keep things under our own power, this self-preservation is actually what will cause us to lose all that matters. Because loyalty for Christ must come higher than all other loyalties. And think about what Jesus did himself, the, the example that he gave us. He's the Savior, the Eternal One, the Son of God, the Messiah, who came to earth, he, he condescended, he humbled himself to come to earth. He's the only being all, in all the universe who is truly worthy of all effort and aspiration in our part. And he's the one that humbled himself, condescended himself, and went to a cross. So that those who were created through him might have eternal life. And he himself went to the cross first 
so that later he could receive the crown. And I'm ashamed to say how often I want the crown before the cross in my own life. But the cross must come first. The suffering, the perseverance, the pain, the difficulties. The cross comes first. The crown comes later. And so in the wisdom of God, then when we give up our lives, we actually are giving it up for something that is better and far more valuable. But if we follow merely in the ways of men, we will get what the, the ways of men end up in, and that is death and judgment. Because apart from God, apart from being in his will, there is nothing for the unbeliever but death for his soul, which is eternal separation from God. So what does that look like if we're to give up the, our life for the things of God? Well, if we give our lives to the things of God, we will find true life. So what does that look like? Well, if you have a business, be known more for your charity and your character and your humility and your good service than for anything else. If you're a Christian teacher, care as much for how the, the student is doing than just the grades he's receiving. And make sure you teach according to the truth, even if it costs you something. For the Christian doctor, model humility and care of helping patients and, and avoiding the temptation that sometimes we see of having a savior complex. To the Christian minister, it means show dependency upon God and his strength and have a keen awareness of your own fallings and a complete dependency upon Christ. The one who loses his life for Christ, who lives in the way of Christ, discovers another paradox that we are most truly free when we are servants of the living God. It's a great deal to be a servant when our master is Christ. That's when we truly are the most free. So we need to lose in order to live. Secondly, to gain is no gain. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And we've already sung this morning of the value of the human soul created in the image of God that will last forever, but that can only be seen and understood in light of the kingdom of heaven. And while we shouldn't reduce it just merely to a material comparison here, Jesus clearly says that there is nothing of such value that it is worth your soul. There's not enough gold in the universe. There's not enough precious jewels in the vault. There's not enough money in the bank that can match the true riches that we can have in Christ. So think about this, friends. Let's run after the riches that are in Christ. Because if we run after the riches of this world, the greatest of which is gold, we're just simply running after that which will be pavement in the new heavens and the new earth. Wouldn't you rather have the riches that come in Christ? But what if, we play the what if game this morning, what if you could achieve everything that you set out to achieve? All of the jobs and successes and positions and places and money and cars and on and on and on and on it goes. What if you could accomplish all of that, but it would cost you your soul forever? Is that a fair trade? People run after the joys and toys of this world, which can never truly satisfy, because wealth cannot ultimately save Political power cannot ultimately deliver from sin and death. Earthly pleasure cannot set your heart free from the bondage of sin. And so Jesus asks that tough question again. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Of course, we know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. It profits him nothing. But look at the history of, of humanity. In the history of humanity, there are many men who would be God. And history is full of pain and suffering and war and slavery and injustice and destruction. Yes, there have been many men in history who would be God, but there was only one God who would be man, and that makes all the difference. But think of the absurdity in any case of running after the wealthy. You really can't gain the whole world, can you? Think because... Everybody else down here is going after it as well, and they're going to fight you for it. And so even if you could gain the whole world, which you can't, think of the effort that goes into it and all that is lost. We all see this bumper sticker. 
He who dies with the most toys wins. Really? So you get the reward, you get the title, you get the position, you get the praise, you get the success, and you die without Christ. You have nothing. But if you have Christ, you know what true riches are, and you have everything. I think the Apostle Paul captures this well as he's writing to Timothy and he's preparing this young man to be a church pastor. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What can we exchange for our souls? Nothing. But you know how we, we've learned the last couple of weeks not to follow the example of Peter because Peter didn't always get it right. I want to give you an example this morning where we can follow Peter because Peter wrote a letter towards the end of his life after years of reflection and getting it wrong and then getting it right and having this lifestyle of falling and repenting and running back to Jesus. And in his first epistle, he said, and if you call on him, now he's writing to a church or Christians that are facing persecution. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that, look at the words, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. You think he was listening to what Jesus said? What can a man gain if he gains the whole world? Is gold enough? Is silver enough? No, what were they redeemed by? What were they ransomed by? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The great comparison in the end is no comparison. Nothing compares to Christ and the riches that we can have in him. And our third point then brings us to the idea of glory and rewards. Because there is a final judgment that is to come that will examine the lives of every one of us. As Dr. Michael Wilkins reminds us, at the end of this life, we are each measured by the health of our souls and not by the wealth of our estates. And so we have this promise then that there will be a final judgment because the Son will return. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. It is his favorite self-designation, the title that he most prefers to use. It's a title that points to a glorious Messiah, and it's based on what we see in Daniel chapter 7, where one like the Son of Man approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, is, is going towards the throne where God the Father is, and from the Father receives a kingdom and authority over all nations that will last forever. That's our Jesus. He has received that kingdom, that authority, that power, that majesty. He will rule and reign over all nations with a rod of iron, and he will return one day in power and great glory. Did you catch that at, towards the end of the Nicene Creed? He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end because the Son will judge, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And sometimes we're tempted to diminish Jesus. We want to redefine him according to what is important to us. And Peter tried that. And he was rebuked. Jesus will judge each person in a judgment that is true, honest, complete, just. We will all stand before the throne of God in his all-seeing holy eyes, revealing all that we have done and thought and said and hoped for and joked about and, and planned and complained over. And as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And his judgment will reveal then those that have walked with Jesus, who have been faithful to him, who have heard his call, and those who did not. 
several times the promise has already come. It will come more times in the gospel according to Matthew. Of persecution, of suffering, of trials, of hardships. And we are a people that do believe that Jesus will return one day. And if that's the case, if we're alive when we see him, or if we die before he returns, what will be the goals of our lives? What will our lives really have lived for? Should it not be not so much physical well-being, but finding spiritual well-being? What do you want to be the statement of your life? And in some ways, we might need to live backwards, as it were. Where we imagine being at the end of our lives, and we look down across the time that God has given us, and what do we want people to know about us, to know about Jesus, to have heard from us, to have learned from us, when we're about ready to breathe our last breath. And then as we look at that and look backwards, what are the steps we can take, the things that we can do between now and that point, so that there are truly godly objectives and goals and purposes and plans that are carried out. You're going to see the members of the missions committee wearing a shirt this morning. I was going to wear mine, but I thought I, I better wait till after the service. It quotes from an old song we know, One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And yet... If Jesus is our treasure and our pleasure and our goal and our desire and our hope and our life, there is great reward in following Christ. It's the greatest gig going. Following Christ, living for him. Because we realize then that Jesus is the ultimate reward. And he will reward all that has been done in his name. And, and so and, and we struggle in this life. We struggle. Our hearts are always needing to be molded and turned more into being what God would have them to be. Our minds continually need to be renewed by the truth of God's word, and this is a daily struggle for all of us. And it might be that there are things that you are doing in great service to God that others don't see. It might be things that you have done in the past that maybe others have forgotten about or overlooked. It might be that some even want to Play the comparison game. Oh, well, you say you've done this? Well, let me tell you about what I've done. That's the judgment of men. God never does those things. He sees all. He knows the motives behind all. He's always able to give a proper and right judgment. And we can lean into him and lean upon him and trust him. Even if we think he's the only one that sees. Because even if he is the only one that sees... He's the only one that matters. Now, to be clear, we are children of the Protestant Reformation. We know that it's all about Jesus all the time, that Jesus did it all. So we, we are not saved by our works. We are saved by works, but they're not ours. They're the works of Christ. And his righteousness has been imputed to us, credited to our account. But once we are saved, we are saved to perform good works for his glory and for the good of his people. As Martin Luther says, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. And so we want to be the, the, the aroma of Christ as we allow him to work in and through us. And we do have good works. And there is a reward for those good works. And in fact, there's, there's such a reward for it that even our place, our eternal place in heaven is determined somewhat by the works that we've done for Christ. There are rewards. And that causes us then to put our minds on the things of God, to lay up our treasures in heaven, not to try to accumulate them on earth. And so if Jesus is our ultimate treasure and reward, then make Jesus your ultimate treasure and joy and focus and delight. Be that person that people love to be around because the aroma of Christ just oozes from your life. Let Christ be your treasure and pleasure, and you'll be a blessing to so many far beyond even what you can imagine. And lastly then, and quickly, a great promise. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'll say it up front, this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the gospel according to Matthew. What does it mean, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Is it something immediate or something that will happen later? Is it immediately in the lives of the apostles? Does it happen later on and in the history of the church? 
Biblical and evangelical scholars have had a number of different positions on this, and all of them love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they don't all agree on how to properly understand this verse. We're going to consider it more next week as we consider the next episode in the life of Jesus, but some say it could refer to the transfiguration, which happens six days later after this event. There are others say, well, why would you promise no one will die within six days? So it must refer to the resurrection, which was certainly a new stage in the revelation of who Christ is and his victory over sin. What about the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father and his enthronement as king of heaven where he receives this kingdom? Or is it referring to the Holy Spirit who comes down at Pentecost and gives birth to the church? And now this new covenant age has begun in earnest and those who are in Christ are being swept in. Is it referring to the rapid church growth that Jesus is showing? I will build my church. Is it referring to the fall of Jerusalem with great judgment in 70 AD? When the Old Testament age comes to a definitive end with the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the people of Israel, is it the second coming itself? I don't say all these things to confuse you. We're going to talk a little bit more about it uh, more, more next week. But it does possibly refer to several different things. And perhaps then the plea at this time is to just have a hermeneutic, which is a method of interpretation, a hermeneutic of humility. And say, you know what? In light of the sovereign mind of God, we may not understand everything, but we can certainly give it a try, and we will next week. When this term is used, the coming of the Son of Man, it's used several ways in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And for time's sake, I'm just going to pass over this, and I'll try to bring it up next week. But where this phrase, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, refers to different things in the gospel according to Matthew. But I, I think what's clear for our purposes this morning is that clearly Jesus is referring to things that reveal his kingdom, his power, and his glory. And I think it's probably something that re is revealed and unfolded in this event, and maybe a little more in this event, and a little more in this event. And we have to go back to Daniel chapter 7 and let Daniel speak to us because what it meant then will influence what it must mean here. But this phrase, the coming of the Son of Man, is going to come up several times in Matthew, and so we're going to wrestle with it. And if you're walking away this morning with just a little bit of confusion right now, I understand that that's normal. We're going to wrestle with this together, and we're going to learn more about this together and look at what the text actually says, and we'll have a chance to do that more next week. But one thing is clear. If we look at the context, it's the call of the gospel. It is the reality that there's really ultimately only one choice. And it is the reality that Jesus Christ will come to judge. That means there's an urgency to the gospel. Even if we don't understand all the P's and Q's of everything happening here, we know enough to be sure that if today we hear the gospel call, now is the day to deny ourselves, to take up the cross and follow Jesus, to set our focus on Jesus, to repent of waywardness in our own lives and turn to Jesus and not on anything else. Because whatever this verse may mean, whether in a short term, a long term, or ultimately, we do not have a guarantee that we will live out this week. But the guarantee will be we will face him in judgment. Are we ready? Have you taken up the cross? Have you died to self? Is your life reflecting in an ongoing life of repentance over sin, of sorrow over sin, of turning to Christ who is a great Savior and receiving his warm embrace and walking in fellowship with him again and again and again? Is Christ your pleasure? your treasure because if it is it'll show it'll show because God when he brings growth when he brings new birth he brings change he brings growth he brings development he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion let the redeemed of the Lord say so let those who are on Christ show it by a way of just joyful surrender to the will of God not my will but thine O Lord is a way of life 
Before we, or as we're beginning the communion service today, I talked about the men at the Council of Nicaea writing the Nicene Creed. There were 318 delegates at that council in the early 4th century. Of the 318, 306 of them had suffered for their faith. Many of them had had an eye gouged out during torture. Many of them had lost a hand, a leg that was purposely made lame and trying to get them to deny Christ. 306 of the 318 knew what it was to walk in the way of the cross. And they gave us this beautiful statement of faith, forged in the fires of history that has withstood the test of time. As commentator David Turner says, they understood cross before crown, suffering before glory, service before reign. And if we want to rule and reign with Christ, which is the ultimate outcome of all of us who are in Christ, we must first be willing to go through shame and disgrace, be accused, maybe even humiliated as we carry the cross. And even as we gather this morning, millions of our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering disgrace and shame and loss and imprisonment because of Christ. But if you listen to their story, they'll say it is worth it all because Christ is to be our treasure. As we hear the gospel call this morning, let us be ready because Jesus bids us, come and follow me. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him as he leads you to the shores of the celestial city. Let us pray. Now, Father, as we contemplate what you would have us do this week, we turn to you and we thank you, Father, that we can trust you. Father, you've given us a hard message this morning that have come from the lips of your son, but he is worthy of our ears to hear and to heed. And so, Father, help us to take to heart what you have taught us this morning. And help us to make those changes that you're calling us to, but help us to rest in the provision of Christ. And may not only the joy of the Holy Spirit fill our hearts, but may the joy of it be on our lips as we find our treasure in Christ. As we commit ourselves to you anew in Jesus' name. Amen.